Amazing. Welcome to the Parsha class, Jewish Insights on Parshat Vayishlach. Our Parsha, a fascinating story. If you've got your, uh, your source books, I've got mine, and we are ready to fly. We're going to go through a quite an interesting conversation today. If you've looked at the source notes in advance, you will be caught by this. In a way, it's a question. Why, when a person prays and thanks Hashem for something good, might they mention their ill performances, inverted commons, their sins, at the same time. That is part of today's discussion. And let us not blow you away too quickly. We'll take it slow. <clears throat> Sometimes we feel really good about ourselves. And it's at that moment where we think life is great and we're winning. And we think that we're just on top of everything. And still, we're going to pay attention to how our, we need to always refocus and get back in line on what is so much more important, and that is what we're going to talk about today. So straight away, section A, we're reading from the abridged Shulchan Aruch, and I'm going to ask uh, Robert, Professor Blumenthal, to read for us section one. This is a selection about the special blessing that is recited at the Torah reading called Hagomel. What is this blessing made for? That we'll discover. When does a person need to say the blessing? We'll see that too. And finally, we'll discuss the actual words included. Professor Blumenthal, take it away. On four occasions, a person must thank God for his goodness. One, after crossing the ocean and reaching his destination. Two, after crossing the desert or any other dangerous road and reaching his destination. Included in this rule is also one who was saved from any other peril, such as when a wall caved in on him, or an ox lunged at him ready to gore him, or robbers attacked him on the road, or thieves attacked him at night and he was saved from them. Three, one who suffered from serious illness or injury, or he was confined to bed for at least three days due to an illness and his health was restored. And four, one who was in prison, even if it was only because of money matters, and he was released. A sign, and all the living shall thank you. Chaim, life, is an acronym for the Hebrew terms for illness, suffering, sea, and desert. What blessing is recited? Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who bestows goodness upon the guilty, for he has bestowed goodness upon me. Thank you, Professor Blumenthal. How do we know that one needs to say a prayer of, of thanks to God for being saved from a, peril, a perilous situation. It comes from chapter 107 of Tehillim, where it discusses these four dangerous situations. And it teaches us that to appreciate the rescue service that Hashem, that God provides for a Jew when he cries out for salvation. The chapter adds that the people who experience these salvations will thank Hashem publicly. And the words in English are, and they shall exalt him in an assembly of people and in a sitting of elders, they praise him. 
And this is the source for the custom that we say the blessing of Baruch HaGomel, the Chayavim Tovos, Shegomolani Tov, we say that in shul, in the synagogue, at a Torah reading. Lots of us, lots of the people on this group have opportunities all the time to say this blessing because according to at least, uh, uh, many opinions and certainly the opinion that, my, that our community follows, when a person takes a international, not international just crossing borders, but going over a sea, like, you know, try this, LA to Sydney, Australia, that's an often done one. So you, when, you, when you finish that flight, you make the blessing, the same thing on the way back, or if you're going perhaps from New York to Israel or whatever your travel might be, I don't think you have to do it when you travel from uh, New York to um, Mexico. I'm not sure though. You'll look into it. Anyway, The question that I'd like to pose to all of you, and the same question that the Rebbe is asking in the coming paragraph is, if the text of the Agoma blessing is thanking God for the goodness that he did for me, why do I add in the words, upon the guilty? We're thanking Hashem for the goodness he's done to us. In the third line, blessed are you who bestows goodness upon the guilty, for he has bestowed goodness upon me. Why must I say upon the guilty? It seems reasonable that the only focus of the blessings should be the specific kindness we receive from Hashem. If so, the text of the blessing should read, blessed are you who bestowed goodness upon me. Why must we mention our own deficiencies and say that Hashem bestows goodness upon the guilty? This is a question I think that that should have I should have noticed this one a long time ago. So given that it has this unusual element, is there any other blessing that has a similar variation in it? When you say Hamotzi Lechem in do you say for the guilty ones? You bring out the bread from the ground for the guilty. You say, um, what's another example over here? Um, when we say a Sheikh Yanu, who has given us life and sustained us and brought us to this time. Sheikh Yanu, So should we add in who has given us the guilty ones, life and he sustained us and he took care of us? It's like, why add it in? But when it comes to the, the blessing of Hagomel, we, not, we add it in, it's part of the text, and, and we, rec- we say out loud, we're the guilty ones, and thank you for, for nevertheless giving us goodness. So that's an unusual variation of text that really has to be properly and thoroughly worked through and understood. So we enter into section B, we're digressing, we're diverting from this tone of the conversation and taking a look at a at the words of Jacob in our parsha, and in reference to an occasion that happened uh, to an, uh, something that happened to the first Lubavitcher Rebbe. I'm taking a moment here to put up a quick picture of the first Rebbe, and you will notice that the picture is somewhat inverted, but you can see him right there 
That is the altar Rebbe, the old Rebbe. He was the first Chabad Rebbe, and he lived um, in 1745 to 1812. He was a second-generation disciple of the Baal Shem Tov. So we've discussed many times about the history of Hasidut, and of course Chabad is a Hasidic variation. So now as we further attempt to understand this better, we want to see, we want to learn something from the Alter Rebbe's teachings. But first, a little introduction to why we're talking about this now. The 19th of Kislev coming up in about uh, five days. It's next, next week. The 19th of Kislev is marked as the new year of Hasidism. On this day in 1798, the Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi, who is the founder of the Chabad movement, was released from Zaris prison. The joy of his release wasn't just his own. This day opened a new chapter in the history of the Hasidic movement and marked a new era in the dissemination of the Torah's inner dimension. Well, did Hasidism start with the Alter Rebbe? No, it started with the Baal Shem Tov, who lived from 1698 all the way through 1760. And he was the first one to reveal the mystical ideas of Hasidism, which were then only available to a select few, to the people who really worked hard to attain that knowledge. After the Baal Shem Tov passed away, he passed the, the mantle of leadership, was passed on to a disciple of his, Rabbi Dovber, who was called the Magid of Mezrich. And... He, too, had a special connection with the 19th of Kishle, which is coming up. It was the day that he passed away, 26 years before the, the Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Shnir was released from prison. Shortly before his own passing, the Magid of Mezrich, Rabbi Dover, told his disciple, the Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Shnir pictured there, he told him, the 19th of Kislev will be our day, this day is our holiday. And that was kind of a prediction for what was to come 26 years later when the Alter Rebbe was finally released from prison, from Zara's prison. And I'm going to tell you why in a moment. So in the teaching of the Hasidic understanding, the Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Shneir Zalman, took it a further step. He started the Chabad Hasidus variation. So now you're wondering, what's the difference? So Hasidus in general is a philosophy which comes with a culture. The, the other Hasidic types encourage that Hasidic understanding be, be understood by the highest echelons of the group. And everybody else connects with the Hasidic environment with one-liner quips, that are motivational at the time and with the culture and experience that it has. And, you know, you can go and watch films and, and, and take a tour of Williamsburg and experience that in a way. Mm -hmm. But in the, Has, in the Chabad Hasidus, the idea is that every single person have immediate access to the deepest understandings of Hasidism, effectively, the biggest secrets of Judaism should be made available to everybody. And in fact, on our group here with us are two people who get together on their own without any rabbinic support. 
and study the, the Bible of Hasidus. It's called the Tanya, and they study that together on their own. It's so accessible that even a beginner who cannot read Hebrew can immediately jump in. And certainly someone with a basic level of Hebrew understanding can get involved as well. And there's so much accessible on the internet. It's all there. Regardless, during its pioneering years, the Hasidist movement faced great opposition. Why? At times, it was very intense. And who was making the opposition? It was the rabbinate and the Jewish establishment, what might be called the federation of that time. Why? Even in the Hasidic movement itself, some of Rabbi Schneir Zalman's colleagues, his associates, were worried that he had crossed the line in his effort to make Hasidism popular and available. Taking the mystical ideas meant only for the intellectual and holy and making them available for the masses. In the fall of 1798, several Jews in the opposition went to the government and falsely accused Rabbi Shneur Zalman of planning a rebellion against the Tsar. This was their plan to get rid of him. Rabbi Shneur Zalman was arrested on charges of treason. He was sent to the Petropavlsky prison, which is in Petersburg. And 53 days later, he was miraculously released and acquitted from all charges. Now, Rabbi Schneer Zalman saw the imprisonment as a reflection of the holy, of the heavenly opposition to his decision to disseminate the secrets of the Torah. And therefore, he saw his release as a vindication as well. And as such, after the 19th of Kislev, the day he gets out of prison, he intensifies his efforts in disseminating Hasidism and expanding his ideas. Now, if your leader or teacher or someone very close to you was put into prison on false pretense and was suddenly and was finally released after much effort, how would you react? This was something that the Alter Rebbe needed to deal with. He needed to ensure that his students would not make a big to-do about his release and go to the opposing people, the people who did not like Hasidism, and give them, you know, show them that they had come out victorious. He wanted to make sure that everybody would be um, humble and forgiving and not um, you know, in their face, as you might have it. Okay, now, the Alter, how did the Alter Rebbe communicate this information to everybody? He wrote a letter titled with the words Katonti, Katonti, K-A-T-O-N-T-I, and we're going to see it here in the verse. He quotes what happened to Jacob. So that brings us to source two, Jacob's prayer. To understand the letter that the Alter Rebbe wrote and the approach, we want to read first the events that lead up to Jacob's prayer, which come in our parsha and our Torah portion this week. And so what's the story? Jacob is fleeing Esau and he runs to Haran. In Haran, he gets married to his cousins, Leah and Rachel. And then he builds a beautiful family together, together and he becomes the, um, the, one of the wealthiest men of the time. 
And after 22 years of living away from his parents and with a trickster of a dad, it's time for him, of a father-in-law, sorry, it's time for him to go home. So he sends forth, he sends ahead messengers, spies call it, who were going to take a look and see if it's a safe path, if it's a good time to travel. And they come back saying that Esau is still upset. His brother, Jacob's brother, who he had effectively stolen the birthright from, his brother is still upset about the story. And as soon as he finds out that Jacob is going to come home, Esau will meet up with him with an army of 400 officers. And they're going to do away with, with Jacob's prestigious family. And so how does Jacob react to this? He pre prepares himself in three ways. One of them is he sends Esau gifts, hoping to appease him. Another one, he divides his family and he prepares for war. And finally, he offers a prayer to Hashem in hope that Hashem will take care of him in this um, in this coming situation. And to this, we lean in to source number two, Beratius Genesis chapter 32, verses 10 to 10, 11, and 12. And we're going to ask, Susan, will you read for us, please, source number two? Okay. Um, and Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, and the Lord who saved, said to me, return to your land and to your birthplace, and I will do good to you. I have become unworthy from all the kindness and from all the truth that you have rendered your servant. For with my staff, I crossed the Jordan River, and now I have become two camps prepared for battle. Now deliver me from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid of him, lest he come and strike me, my wife, and my children. Thank you, Susan. Hold on a second. You'll continue in a moment. But I'd like everyone to take it, to pay attention to the first, to the words that Rashi is about to quote. These are important. I want you to see the Hebrew words too. So in the second paragraph of the, of, um, of the source number two, the first Hebrew word is katonti. If you can see it, give us a thumbs up. Katonti. Awesome. Okay, so someone, some of us have, have noticed the word katonti. Katonti has similar letters to the word katan. What does katan mean? Katan means small. A person has become small. Uh, something is small. Katonti I have become small. Jacob introduces, or midway in his, in his prayer, he says, I have become small. How does our translation do it? I have become unworthy. I'm too small. I'm too unworthy for the goodness that God is about to bless me with. We're going to discuss this right now. Susan, please read for us Rashi. I have become unworthy. My merits have diminished because of the kindness and the truth that you have done to me. Therefore, I fear lest I have become sullied with sin, 
since the time you promised you will be good to me and it will cause me to be delivered into Esau's hands. Thank you, Susan. What happened in 22 years? On Jacob's way down, Yaakov Avinu is traveling down from his homeland to Haran, and he says, and God says to him, I am with you, and I will guide you wherever you go. Now, Jacob is saying, I have become unworthy from, for all of, from all of the kindnesses that God is going to do to me. What happened in between that is making Jacob afraid that he must pray a second time? That he must put forth a prayer and asking God, please take care of me again. He thinks something has happened. Jacob thinks that he's done something, something has happened in between that should take away his merits. You know, when we, um, in a way, we look at Jacob and we say, Jacob, you're the wealthiest guy ever. I mean, four wives, uh, th that's one thing. But 12 kids. 12 kids. And who knows how many hundreds of grandchildren. And great-grandchildren. The Torah tells us that when Jacob's family entered, entered Egypt, they were a group of 70 people. 200 years later, Jacob has millions of descendants. Millions of people were standing at Mount Zion. Jacob is, I mean, in just in Nachas, he's a wealthy guy. Then add on to the family, he has um, servants and maidservants, and he has... Um, he has animals and he has sheep and cow and other things. Who knows? I, I don't, I'm not even trained to say all of the terms of the different animals that he has. He's such a wealthy fellow. Why does Jacob, perhaps in his wealth, he thinks maybe God has given me all this wealth in exchange for all of my merit. And now that I've run out of merit because I have so much wealth, I have to pray again. That's a maybe. Let's move on to section C. Before we go to section C, does anyone have a question or a quick comment to guide us forward or to reflect on? Reb Shmuel. Uh, just maybe that he's, uh, he's concerned because he had spent so much time in the vicinity and company of Levan. Okay, that's really good. Excellent. Remember that, um, that Jacob married into, did not marry into lineage. He married family, but he married... In a way, he married, uh, his, his father-in-law married down. Lavan was a trickster and a cheat, and he was uh, he even stuffed around with Jacob's, uh, with Jacob's marriage. He wasn't the straightest guy. So maybe, as, Rabbi, as Professor Blumenthal um, notices, maybe that's why Jacob feels like he should pray again, because he's married, uh, because he spent so much time with such a wicked and sneaky guy. Okay, Susan, go for it. Well... Jacob did steal his brother's inheritance. It's like, okay, he did it. Did he ever, did he ever practice teshuva? Did he ever repent? He has gotten all of him. He, he, he did steal his brother's birthright and his brother's blessings, his brother's inheritance. And then he ran off. And so he only benefited 
from the 20 years or 22 years, he learned to cope. Um, I think Jacob was, was manipulative too. And maybe he wasn't as manipulative as his father-in-law, his uncle. He learned, he learned. So maybe he was feeling a little bit unworthy because of how, of what he did. Was this maybe because of teshuva? I don't know. I've never read where he said he was sorry that he was wrong for doing it. Susan, I've got to say that was a good comment. Thank you. Um, so Susan's telling us that maybe Jacob is feeling like he's feeling le less, less than and low in merit because of his, his own dealings with his brother that, eventually, that he eventually, that he chapped his brother's birthright. Um, okay, so that's a great comment as well. Well, thank you. Thank you, Susan. Thank you. And, the, and, and with all of this, let's take another look at what the, these lessons can all do for each other to show us how a person, um, how Jacob can feel about his unworthiness and how we can learn from it too. Let's take a look. And for this, we'll ask, Margot, can you read for us? Uh, the closest effect? Yes, the closer the, the, closer, exactly. the, the closer, the lesser. The deeper meaning in, the, in this passage was explained by Alter Rebbe in the letter he wrote following his release from prison. When he experienced the statement of Psalms, he redeemed my soul in peace, which begins with this very passage. He explains that Jacob felt unworthy of all of the kindnesses and the truth because of the kindness and truth. He felt unworthy of salvation precisely because he had experienced so much of God's kindness. The altar rabbi explains, why did Jacob feel small? Because he had crossed the Jordan to Haran with only a stick in his hand. And now he was returning with two camps. God's extensive kindness towards him made him feel small, specifically because he felt so close to God. This idea is explained at length in Hasidic discourses in which the matter is applied to our own service of God. In truth, it is quite simple. When an ordinary person, and especially an undignified person, a most lowly human being, dirty and laying in filth, as, descri as described in Tanya, is welcomed and shown kindness by the king of all kings, God himself, in all his glory, the vastness of the disparity gives rise to an intense feeling of humility and unworthiness in the individual to whom the king has shown kindness. Thank you, Margo. So um, we're gonna, I'm gonna break for a second. Try imagine this for a moment, a person who has been struck by the pandemic, God forbid, so bad, and he's lost everything, and he is now, God forbid, homeless. And homeless, he is in rags, and he's unkempt, and he's not taken care of. God forbid, it should, we shouldn't know of such things. And then, in a miraculous way, the president of the United States, the, the most powerful man in our country, goes and finds him in his hovel on the street somewhere and takes him by the hand and brings him to the White House. 
and gives him unbridled access to the presidential suite. And he dresses him and he employs him and he gives him goodness. Think about this man and how he now relates to the president. He is so overwhelmed by the goodness, he might even be embarrassed. It may even be hard for him to look at his benefactor in the eye and to appreciate and to experience and to live with his new reality. It's so overwhelmingly good that it's hard for him to experience it completely. This guy, he's not going to like, he's not going to start running around the world telling everybody, oh, look at me, I am a guest of the president. It's, that's like the, the other way it's going to go. In, instead, he's going to be kind of humbled. He knows that he didn't earn the position that he has, and it's only due to the kindness of, the, of, of his benefactor, of the president in our story. The Alter Rebbe explains in the Tanya that in the same way, this is how a Jew experiences goodness from God. When Hashem is kind to us with something, with anything that we have, and how fortunate we are to have what we have, effectively, the closeness that we now feel recognizing that Hashem has given and provided for us in this way, that closeness should lead to intense humility and respect for our benefactor. And we'll take an example from this in the placement of asking for forgiveness in prayer. Where in prayer do we say, we bang our chest, yeah, it's in the Amidah. It's in the, it's in the Amidah. But in the Amidah is already late in prayers. If you take a Siddur and you start from the beginning at Hodu, you have the Psuke de Zimra chapters of, of verses of praise, praising God and the greatness and his kindness to us. And then you have the Shema that follows. And then only afterwards you then have the Amidah and erst in the middle of the Amidah, you start saying, oh, I'm like, look at me, I've sinned. And you're banging your chest like, like we do. So let's take a look. Forgiveness in the Amida. I'm looking for Stephen. Can you read for us, please? Forgiveness in the Amida. Forgiveness in the Amida. This also explains the passage we recite in the Amida. Forgive us, for we have sinned. Pardon us, for we have transgressed. A famous question is asked. Why isn't the prayer for forgiveness situated at the beginning of the service? It would seem appropriate to request forgiveness before approaching the king and to only then enter the king's chamber to present our prayers. Instead, we follow the opposite order. We first recite Pesuke de Zimra, the opening chapters of thanks, followed by the blessings of Shema and the Shema itself. And finally, we reach the Amidah prayer when we stand before God silently like servants before a master in total reverence. And then we suddenly remember that we have sins for which we need to repent and request God's forgiveness. So, thank you, Stephen. You're welcome. Picture 
in your mind a 10-year-old, a child, a child who at times will be, will be, you know, rude, will be rude to his parents or to his grandparents. And he will disrespect the goodness that his elders have provided for him. Later, this child, he or she grows up, becomes a little bit of an adult, has kids of his own, and suddenly now realizes that all the things that he did as a little kid kind of rude and distasteful to the number one provider in his life. So what happened 20 years? What happens from, from 10 to 20, from 10 to 30? What happens in that time? Now that he's in a higher and he's in a wiser position, he has come to... Um, he's come to learn what dedication to a child, what dedication to a, a child looks like, experiences like. Now he's smarter, he's more mature, he's more experienced. He has a bit of regret and embarrassment for the things that he did in his in his youth. The same thing stands true in prayer and in our lifestyle. When we start the morning, we think we, you know, we may think like we did at the end of the day that all of yesterday's success is mine. I worked hard and I won. I made the big bucks. But then throughout the morning prayers, I think to myself about all of the realities that the prayers discuss. And each prayer tells a message of God is my provider and God takes care of me and God provides all. Well, if that's the case, then I have this newfound understanding of who God is in my life. And if that's who God is, and I'm so appreciative of what he's supplied and provided and given to me, now that I'm 20 pages older or much more mature as I've gone through the prayer, I recognize that all of the goodness that happened to me yesterday and today is really from God. Some of the things that I did while thinking I had taken care of myself, I realized were actually disrespecting the one who had provided it for me. And so suddenly in the middle of the Amidah, I'm able to say, Slachlanu, forgive us. Keep Oshanu, because I've, I've sinned against you, against the Holy One, blessed be you. And that is, my friends, what it says here in the section called From a Bird's Eye View. The explanation. There are certain actions which, before standing before, standing before God, during the Amidah, they do not seem to be sins or transgressions. A person's path is straight in his own eyes. But when one enters the king's palace and he stands as a servant before his master, he suddenly realizes that those matters were an act of disrespect to God, being that his presence fills the entire heavens and earth. So those deeds which seem straight and not illogically suddenly seem different during those moments before the king. 
And he realizes in those moments before the king, which is the Amidah, he realizes that he needs to request forgiveness for those sins and transgressions. And this brings us to Jacob. On the same note, the Alter Rebbe writes in his letter that the closer one feels to God, the more you should feel inadequate and unworthy. Therefore, J Jacob felt very small in his own eyes to the extent that he felt like a sinner. At face value, this raises a question. If J Jacob had transgressed God's will, he should have repented earlier. And he, and he no doubt did so. Of course, our forefathers, they're called the chariots to the Almighty, and all their days and all their actions were done in exact accordance with God's will. If so, how could Jacob have been so sinful to make him deserving of succumbing to Esau's attack? And that's why the Alter Rebbe explains this idea that being shown so much kindness from God in other words, being elevated to a higher spiritual plane, his actions, which didn't seem sinful to, in any form beforehand, suddenly seemed from a higher vantage point to be transgressions with serious implications. And so here it is that the Alter Rebbe tells us that Jacob explains Jacob's thoughts. He wasn't afraid that his merits were used up and he was out of fuel, so to speak, that he had lost. It was more than that. Jacob had experienced a tremendous amount of kindness from Hashem. He got married. He built a family. He had many children. He got a lot of wealth. He, he was establishing the foundation of the nation of Israel. This brought him even closer to Hashem. However, in his heightened spiritual state, what used to be considered normal and good was no longer good enough. And therefore, he feels humbled. And therefore, he turns to God and he says, I am unworthy. I'm not good enough anymore. You've given me so much. Now I need to be even better. This brings us to section D. And for section D, let us ask, Mal, can you read us, please, when we feel guilty? Okay, section D. Is, let's see what that is here. Got it. Now, have you got it? Okay, yes, I got it. Excellent. When we feel guilty, the above discussion will resolve our question. Why do we declare ourselves guilty in the blessing of thanksgiving despite not doing so in other blessings we, which is recited? The blessing which we recite after Hashem releases us from a bondage. In the words of the psalm, which is the source of this custom, from their difficult straits, he gives salvation, and therefore we thank Hashem for his kindness, and we offer sacrifices of thanks. This thanksgiving offering in the temple is the equivalent of the blessing we recite today. When this takes place, we witness Hashem's kindness and truth. We begin to feel unworthy. A person will begin to contemplate his condition, elements of his life, which seemed satisfactory at a previous time, will no longer seem so. Despite the fact that the person remains in the physical reality, the experience of witnessing Hashem's kindness elevates him to the higher spiritual plane. 
Hashem's presence is more perceivable. And from that perspective, those elements of his life now seem like sins. He now feels that he is unworthy and culpable. Thank you, Mal. So this, this brings us to the end of the text. But now we can begin to understand just a little why in the Hagoma blessing, it's a time to recognize a little bit of our guilt. The Hagoma blessing is not similar to all the other blessings that we say, maybe food or bread, bread or, or, or other things coming to good occasions. The Hagoma blessing is about a salvation from a dangerous sickness or a long journey in the desert. It's a great display of kindness from Hashem. When someone survives such a danger and he comes out healthy and unscathed and he's together with his family, now he's able to feel God's presence. And as such, naturally he feels humbled and he's guilty. And, and, and he sees how there are these guilty aspects in his behavior. He sees that maybe I'm not so deserving for the goodness that I just got. I'm overwhelmed with the goodness. It's so good. But did I really deserve this? And from his new perspective, life in general takes on a new meaning. And his old spiritual state will no longer suffice. It's just not good enough anymore. Now he feels like he needs to improve. This, my friends, I think is a valuable lesson. We live in a, in a unprecedented time of goodness for the globe on a global level. There's so much in the world available for everybody. It's a time for each of us, I think, and based on this, certainly, to reflect on ourselves and take a look at ourselves and like look into our pickle, look into our package and say, Hashem, the goodness that you've given to me, how, do I deserve this? Am I really so deserving? I live in a home. I have a family, siblings, parents, children, friends around me, an environment. I'm safe. I've got food on the table every day of my life. There's so much goodness. If I just count my goodness, I see that I'm, I'm, the, I'm the wealthiest man. And then I look at myself and I say, hey, Chaim, maybe a little, bit of, a little bit of extra davening to thank Hashem for the goodness that you've got. Improve a little on what you're up to already. Put in a little more effort in your work. Each person, certainly around our table today, and every person in the world can find in their space another moment where they can pick up and, and appreciate more and greater the goodness that is given to them. And that, my friends, is a lesson that we can take from this, from the blessing of Hagomel, from the story of Jacob, from the story of the Alter Rebbe. In every instance, after goodness, we're humbled to look back on ourselves and say, now I'm going to work harder. Now I'm going to improve on myself and appreciate greater and give back both to God and to my community with the goodness that I have. And in a way, what can I say? 
I, I'd like to say that my life is currently dedicated, I'm talking about myself, tooting my own horn, you'll forgive me. I've dedicated my life to giving back to the greater community. And it's, it's because my family, my parents, received from people who themselves dedicated their lives to the goodness of the community. And I'd like to wish all of us, each person here can take these steps forward to give back in some way. We studied together, you have the source notes, Take him to your neighbor, Jewish or not, and share with them a lesson about appreciating the goodness that God has given us and sharing it with the world. And with that, my friends, I wish you all a good Shabbos and a good week ahead. And I look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi. And that, my friends, everyone. That is the end of the recording, is it? Yeah. You're still recording.